0: Turn your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And if you uh, are new to the Bible, you can simply look in your table of contents and find the page number for the Gospel of Mark and then find the book. Mark chapter 10. Um, and let me make a quick uh, announcement. the um, Our Sprouts ministry is... Uh, not happening today, um, but uh, if, if you have a very little one, let's say two years old or so, uh, or younger, the nursery is open. Uh, just a little announcement there for you. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. If you can follow along in your Bible, I will read. And uh, we must have had like the biggest spill in the history of the garden over here. Are we good? Yeah. All right, all right. Do we need a mop? No, oh, all yeah. right. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Follow along. I'm going to read uh, through verse 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these things I've kept for my use. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are the first will be last and the last first. Let's pray and ask God to open our eyes. To this passage, Father, we do ask that you give us some insight this morning. We uh, we don't want to just simply read this and talk about it in a light fashion, and 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 have it uh, uh, just simply I don't just just leave leave our minds, leave leave our lips, uh, and and we go go about our days uh, completely unaffected. God, we want to be changed. We realize this morning that uh, the change that we desire is something that can only come from you. The faith that we need is something that can only come from you. The conviction that leads us to abandoning ourselves and clinging onto Christ is something that can only come from you. And so, God, we ask that you give us a gift this morning, that your Holy Spirit sweep through our hearts the people in this room right now that you convict us of our sins, show us where we are clinging on to the, the things of this world, focusing on wealth, focusing on prosperity, and t- taking our eyes off of Christ and the gospel. Help us to understand uh, what Jesus is saying here, help us to understand why Jesus told this certain person, this rich man, to give up everything and to follow him in this way. God, help us to apply these things to our lives so that Jesus may be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. So Jesus encounters this this man who uh, asks a good question. It's a solid, concrete question. How do I inherit eternal life? In Revelation chapter 20, there's a book called the Book of Life. And the picture in Revelation 20 is, is all of those who are, their, their name is, is not found in the Book of Life. They are cast into the lake of fire. The man is asking, good teacher, how do I make sure that I have life? How do I make sure that my name is written in the Book of Life? Now, this is a good, solid, concrete question that should make every single one of us sort of turned to Jesus, uh, and 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 listened to his answer. It's a question that should be on each one of our hearts and minds. Now we don't know much about the rich young man. We know in verse twenty-two that he was rich. It says he had great possessions. Uh, We know in Matthew's gospel that he was young. So we call him the young or the rich young man. But that's about all we know know of this guy. He otherwise remains nameless. Did his name not make it into the book of life? Did he choose, walking away from Jesus, did he choose wealth in this world over wealth in the next? Did he choose to cling onto his own name and his own fame and to make something of himself here only to find no name there? We are all so concerned about our name, aren't we? Like even the most humble among us have to admit that to some degree we want to have a name for ourselves in this world, right? We want some kind of legacy. Nobody likes the idea of living a life and then being forgotten. When we we look at history, I was over Thanksgiving at my great aunt's house, I was looking at a, a history of one, one line of my family that is tracked back to the 1600s. And, uh, and, and what, I w- what kind of hit me as I'm looking at this family history is that, like, none of these names are remembered outside of this little paper. We don't know who their lives are. You can't Google them. You can't find a picture of them. And such will be our fate as well. For the most part, in a generation... Two generations from now, most of us will be forgotten in history. So we are working so hard right now to make something of ourselves, to maybe create wealth for ourselves, to create fame, or we're desiring these things, even if we're too lazy <laughs> to actually put some work into that to make it happen. We, we, we would like those things to be the case, We want to live now in this world, in this earth. We believe that this earth is what really matters. I recently just heard a a, a pastor interviewed by Oprah, and he said, This earth is what matters. And it was just like chills ran down my spine. This earth is what matters. This earth is what matters. This life is what matters. The here and the now, the name that we can make for ourselves now, the wealth that we can accumulate for ourselves now, that's what matters. So here is a rich young man who comes to Jesus, probably has a name for himself. He's, he might be, we don't know this, he might be famous. Like he might be well known. It could be that part of the reason the disciples are so astonished It's because like this guy, blank, whatever his name was, actually approached us and wanted to be part of our thing. But friends, his name is not recorded. We don't even know who he is. He's forgotten to history. Is he forgotten in the book of life? My... My, my hope this morning is, is simply this. We're going we're to look at Jesus' response to his disciples, his, some of his teaching on this encounter with this rich young man. My hope is this, and it's pretty simple. Um, I want us this morning to see eternal life as infinitely more valuable than all of the wealth in this world. To see eternal life to see um, that 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 moment when we stand face to face with Christ, the lamb slain before he, he stands before us in the center of this crowd, and we all fall and we worship him forever and ever, and we eat at his table and we drink, to see eternal life as infinitely more valuable than all of the wealth that anyone can accumulate in this world and so if you are then someone here who is has fears of not uh, having a name for yourself not having wealth not having fame i want those fears to just simply dissipate i want you to know that 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 eternal life is infinitely more valuable than anything you can achieve here This is what Jesus talks about. So what he does is he he has this encounter with the rich young man. The rich young man then, as we saw last week, he walks away. Jesus then turns to his disciples and he gives them some lessons. I want to draw out two lessons here. They are provocative lessons and they are simple lessons that Jesus teaches his disciples based on this encounter. So follow along with me as we go. So the first lesson is this. Jesus says the gate is impossibly narrow. So look at verse 23. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus, Jesus looked at them and he said with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. How hard is it to get to heaven? So remember the, the rich man's first question. How might I inherit eternal life? How hard is it, Jesus is asking? How hard is it to, to enter through this gate? How hard is it to inherit eternal life? How hard is it to get to heaven? Now, today we could say that Christians often fall into one of two to camps, if you would. On one hand, you've got this guy over here who says that the gate is extremely wide. Like everybody can enter. In the end, it's all good. In the end, uh, there's, there's, there's no such thing as judgment for the wicked. Um, everybody enters through an extremely wide gate. Adolf Hitler enters through the gate easily with no repentance, with no turn. Adam Lanza enters, puts a bullet in his head, and then enters through the gate into eternal life. The gate is extremely wide, no judgment, God gets what he wants, and everybody's saved in the end. All right? This guy over here says, Now, wait a second, that's not right. No, no, no. The gate is narrow, and there are few who enter. And then he exhorts his followers look, you have to work very, very hard to get through this gate. You need to shed some sinful pounds through obedience, through a diet of faithfulness. You need to work very hard, and you might, in the end, just be able to sort of squeeze through the gate and make it in. Now, Jesus, I believe, would disagree with both of these guys. He would say, no, not wide, like you're missing it there. No, not like narrow to where you can squeeze in. What Jesus is saying is this. Jesus is saying, let me talk to you about the gate. The gate is impossibly narrow. It's impossibly narrow, meaning you can't get through it. So first, the rich man can't get through the gate, he says. Why? He's, he's trusting in his riches. Uh, John Calvin, let me read this Calvin quote if I can find it. John Calvin says, It is scarcely possible for those who have a great abundance to avoid being intoxicated by them. It's scarcely possible for those who have a great abundance to avoid being intoxicated intoxicated by them meaning riches wealth great abundance can be a blessing from God it could be something that you might use for the propagation of the gospel for good in this world but it can also be and we might say this i want to be careful here but it, we we might say it more often than not is a tool of the enemy to capture us, to capture our imagination, to capture our attention, and that we might turn our eyes off of the self-sufficiency of Christ onto our stuff. It is scarcely possible, says John Calvin, that somebody who has a great abundance can, be, can avoid being intoxicated by them. How might this uh, cause us to rethink the way we do Christmas? We go through so many extremes to get thing after thing after thing, item after item for those that we love and for our kids so that they may on Christmas morning have a great abundance. And John Calvin says it's scarcely possible for those who have a great abundance to not be intoxicated by them. Are we doing our friends and our loved ones a favor at Christmas when we think of it in terms of giving a great abundance of material stuff? I'm not sure. When we desire wealth, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, in and of itself, the desire for wealth is not sinful. No more than a desire for any kind of power. So so power and influence is a morally neutral thing. If you lead an organization, that is a a form of wealth, meaning you have a wealth of power. You have a wealth of influence. Now, should you desire to lead an organization? You might. You might. But for what purpose? Why would you desire to lead an organization? Is it because it makes much of you? Is it because people then look at you as sort of high and and something to be achieved? Is it because now you can direct others and you can place yourself above, above others? In the same way, why would you desire wealth? It may be used for good. But we have to ask ourselves, why is it that I'm desiring this thing? Now, there are many folks who desire wealth uh, with the hopes of being a philanthropist, doing good with them. They achieve wealth, and what happens? Scarcely is the man who has a great abundance who can avoid being intoxicated by them. So often, we have great intention of how we are going to use our power and our influence and our money And then when we achieve these things, we become drunk on them, and we want more, and we don't want to give them away, and we are afraid that we will lose these things. Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, do you guys know this story? Out in the wilderness, fasting for 40 days. Satan comes along and tempts Jesus. What does he tempt him with? Does, does he say, hey, um, if you follow me, you will have poverty in this life. If you follow me, you will have nothing. So come on my way. What does Satan tempt Jesus with? First, he tempts him with, somebody said it, food. Bread. But then he takes it a few steps further, and he takes him onto a high place, and he shows him the kingdoms of this world, and he says, if you bow down to me and worship me, you will have the kingdoms of this world. He tempts Jesus here with prosperity, with everything the world has to offer. Serve me, and you will have everything you want. Friends, when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he was tempted with material stuff, We cannot believe that just because we are, quote, blessed, just because we have a lot of stuff, we cannot believe that that means that that Satan is not behind all of that. You see, for the rich man, Jesus said, you must walk away from it all because these are not things that are helpful for you. They're not things that, are, that, are, uh, that, that you have that you can, can use or are using for the propagation of the gospel or for the glory of God. As a matter of fact, you're intoxicated by these things. You're drunk on them and only, your only response right now is to get away from them as fast as you can. And so sell them, he says, and give it all to the poor and then you can come follow me. Now, the disciples' response, when they hear Jesus say this, when they hear Jesus say, that how, you know, how hard is it for the rich to enter through this gate? How hard is it for them to enter the kingdom of God? Their response is this. I'll just show it to you. It says in verse 20, 24, it says they were amazed at his words. The disciples were amazed At this, at his words, that word "amazed" in the uh, in the original language carries the uh, the sense of being terrified, Uh, sort of a terrified amazement. So, if if you then, as you're just hearing this, and you're hearing Jesus' response, and you hear how hard is it for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God, it's impossibly narrow and your initial sense is a, a a a terrified amazement like i can't believe he just said that then you're in good company that was the exact same emotional response of the disciples but then jesus it's as if jesus says i'm not done yet you haven't heard anything yet he goes on just in case that since since um, since, since they are poor, since they have left everything to follow Him, which we're going to see in a few minutes, uh, so that they might not quickly turn and use that to develop some sort of, like I don't know, poverty theology where we believe that, oh, now because we got rid of everything, now um, because we, we sold everything and we, we, we're living in a commune and we're just helping people all the time now, now now we're earning our way into the kingdom. Jesus, he, he broadens it. Look at what he says. He says, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? Notice what's missing there. Now, some of your translations might insert the rich man, or how difficult is it for the one with riches to enter the kingdom of God? The earliest manuscripts do not. I'm going to lean toward this direction here where Jesus simply leaves it out. So I think what Jesus is saying is this. What Jesus is saying is, is how difficult is it for those who have riches to inherit the kingdom of God? His disciples are shocked. They're amazed with terrified amazement. How can that be? And then he broadens it and he says, oh, by the way, how difficult is it, period, to enter the kingdom of God? Like every single one of you. How difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? You see, the rich trust in their riches, but the moral trust in their morality. The poor Those who have renounced all, trust in their good works. The obedient trust in their obedience. The liberated trust in their liberation and their new ideas. Jesus is saying, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? And his answer is, it is impossibly narrow, the gate. Look at it. Look at the picture that he uses in verse 25 he says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of god now some uh, have believed that to mean a couple different things one possible interpretation is that the eye of the needle re- refers to a, a a small gate in in a wall and so to get a camel through camels, I don't know if you, have you guys ever messed with a camel before? Um, anybody? Uh, me neither. <laughs> but I know that they're brown, and they smell, and they have a hump. And to get them through this gate, some have suggested you would have to remove all of the, the uh, what would you call it, the luggage, we'll, we'll use that word, off of the camel and squeeze it through with as much finesse as this, this beast could possibly give you. Uh, so very hard to get through, but possible to get the camel through. Others have suggested that maybe it's not referring to an animal at all. That word camel uh, is, is misunderstood, and it refers to a rope, like a rope on a ship that you would thread through a hook on the ship. Uh, the, the point is is a lot of translators have and, and theologians have scratched their heads wondering what this could possibly mean. What it cannot possibly mean is that, that, uh, that it's referring to just an animal and the eye of a needle, because that would be impossible. That would be impossible. And guys, I, I think that the best translation, the best understanding of this analogy that Jesus gives is the one that you see in your Bible, which is a camel and an eye of a needle. for various reasons which we can talk about later. But I believe that that is the best way to understand this analogy. Let me let, let me paint this picture for you. Big, smelly, stinky camel with a hump on its back, the kind that you see down at the zoo. How hard is it Jesus is saying to get this camel through this tiny little point? The answer, it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. Jesus is saying, you want to know how wide the gate is. You want to talk about the gate. How how do I inherit eternal life, said the rich man. Let me tell you how, how easy it is to get in. It's not the wide gate that everybody just tumbles through. It's also not the narrow gate that if you take off a couple pounds, you can sort of squeeze through. Jesus says that the gate is impossibly narrow. It is like trying to get a camel through this tiny little point. It's impossible. Now, the reaction of the disciples, I think, helps us to understand the impossibility of getting through the gate. Look at look at their reaction. It says they were exceedingly astonished. Now that word exceedingly astonished is the Greek word thumbeo. Everybody say thumbeo. Well done. It's a word that means sh- to strike with panic. To shock. I want you to get the sense of what the 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 uh, disciples were feeling in this moment. Jesus is saying, "How hard is it for the rich man to get through? It's very, very impossible. How hard is it for everybody to get through? It's very, very impossible." And they are left in this moment with panic. They're left in this moment with shock. Why? Because as they're hearing the teaching of Jesus, they realize that He's also talking about them. Then how is it possible for anybody to get into the kingdom? That's their response. They say, then who can be saved? If this is true, and if your analogy is true, Jesus, then who can possibly be saved? The next line gives us the whole point of jesus teaching here jesus looks at them and he says with man it is impossible but not with god for all things are possible with god so every soul then that makes it through the gate is simply a miracle how does god essentially get us through the gate here's how it requires a death and a resurrection how do we get through that little tiny gate? Me, a camel, eye of a needle. How am I going to get through? Here's the answer. I must die. I have to die. And as I die, I then am resurrected on the other side of the gate. Let me show you a scripture that backs this up in Romans chapter six, verse three and four. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into the Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So, friends, what is the what is the, the 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 wonder of the cross? When we look at the cross, what we see is our own death. We see our own funeral carried out with the death of Christ. When we look at the cross, we see. Uh, Our spiritual death taken on by Christ. We see ourselves buried with Christ. We then die this side of the gate. We die to everything that we are. We die to our flesh. We die to our sin. We die to our trust in ourselves and our own obedience and our morality. We die to the good things that we have done. We die to the bad things that we have done. We die with Christ. The verse goes on. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we, if we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into His death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we have died with Christ, then we have what? We have also raised, been, been raised with Christ. How does God perform this miracle? How does God move a life, a soul, from this side of eternity into eternity? eternal life. It is through a death and through a resurrection. We find ourselves united in the death of Christ, and then we are raised into the newness of life. The song that we often sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in His wonderful face. What do we mean by that? When we see the face of Christ, we see life. When we see the face of Christ, we see God When we see God, we see the one who can do the impossible. And the things of this earth we sing will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we begin to understand the gospel, when we we begin to understand our union with Christ, death and resurrection and our entrance into eternal life, the things of this world just simply grow strangely dim. Now that brings us to our second lesson. The second lesson that we see here in this Jesus response is this. While the cost is truly great, the reward is infinitely better. While the cost is truly great, the reward is infinitely better. Let me break that into two parts. So let's talk about part one. While the cost is truly great, and then we'll talk about part two, the reward is infinitely better better. First part one, look at verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see we have left everything to follow you. Now I can only imagine in this moment that Peter might have a lump in his throat as he's hearing these things and he's, he's hearing of the, the impossibility of on his own getting into the kingdom through one more action. And then he hears of the, the fact that through God the impossibility becomes possible. Jesus then, wanting to show that they are not like the rich man, or Peter wanting to show that they're not like the rich man, says, look, we've gotten rid of everything to follow you. Jesus replies, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel. Let's just stop right there. There is an abandonment in living the Christian life. There is truly a cost that is great. Every Christian is called to abandon everything and follow Christ. Now that abandonment can play out in three different ways. Let me, let me give you three different pictures in how this can play out. The first one is a, a spiritual abandonment, or rather an abandonment of our spiritual riches. We see in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the entry point into the Sermon on the Mount and then the kingdom of God is this, blessed are the poor in spirit what does that mean it means this blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt blessed are those who have nothing you see the rich man who came to jesus came spiritually rich he came with a lot in his spiritual bank he came and he said look i've like fulfilled the law like i've done all of these things since my youth give me something else I need something else, just give me one more thing. He actually believed that he was so spiritually rich, that he had been doing so well, that if he just did simply one more thing, that it would be enough to grant access into eternal life. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who find that they have nothing to offer. Ironically, this rich young man very well could have been the same kind of person who today would look at the church and say, I don't want anything to do with the church because they're all sinners. Like, I live my life in holiness and I'm, I'm faithful, I'm obedient, and the church, I look at the church and I, 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 I know some people that go to church and they are sinners. Like, I don't want anything to do with them. The irony is this. the 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 one uh, or the first we should say entrance requirement into the church is to acknowledge that you are a sinner um, if you wanted to get a membership at the YMCA right down the street you could go there and the entrance requirement is to pay what is it 40 50 bucks and you and you're now in If you want to go to college, go to Coppin State or Micah, you have to show some scores, take some tests, show that you you can keep up. If you want to get into Micah, you have to be able to draw a pretty darn nice picture. Those are some entry requirements. The church is the one institution in this entire world that has the entry, an entry requirement of acknowledging that you are a sinner. Meaning like you can't be part of the garden church unless you first acknowledge that you are a sinner. Imagine sitting in an interview for any other institution and they say, do you believe that you're a sinner? Because if you don't, you can't be part of the institution. The church asks that question. The rich young man could not be part of the church because he was rich in spirit. He didn't see himself as a sinner. He didn't see himself as broken, as spiritually bankrupt. And so first of all, friends, every single Christian must abandon their spiritual riches and fall on their face before Christ and say, I have absolutely nothing to offer. Why should I let you into heaven? Well, first of all, nothing good have I. I'm spiritually broke. I need a savior. The second kind of abandonment that every Christian is part of is an abandonment of ownership. We see here in verse 30, or verse 29, he says talks about leaving brothers and sisters and father and mother and children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Now we do know this. We know that not every single follower of Jesus literally got rid of everything that they had. We see this with Zacchaeus who kept some of his wealth. We see this with the wealthy women who were supporting Jesus' ministry out of their own pockets. We also see this in the New Testament with a woman named Lydia. Lydia was a seller of purple, which means that she was sort of in the fashion industry. She made the the royal cloth, probably, for the Roman Empire. She was lucrative. She had a house in two different cities. She was living the life. She became a Christian. Now, guess what happened shortly after she became a Christian? What we see in the New Testament account, we see that the church began meeting in guess whose house? Lydia's house. Why? Probably because it was large, you see, there was an immediate abandonment of ownership. What what once I saw as mine, as all mine, my space, my luxur- my luxury, my, my 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 couch, my kitchen, my living room, now is no longer mine. And it's the churches. It's the bodies. Of, it's the body of Christ. It's my brothers and sisters as well. And immediately now we see an opening of, every, of all of my possessions to the world around me and to my brothers and sisters in Christ. An immediate abandonment of ownership. Do you own the things that you have? You see, it's much easier to be generous if someone else owns it, isn't it? How often might I ask one of my interns for a piece of gum And they quickly offer the other interns gum. Right? I think that's happened once. Look, if if you have something that's not yours and you know that it's okay to give it away, it's easy to give it away because you don't own it. If I had everybody hand up hold up ten dollars right now, hold up your cash, hand it to the next person. Now I asked everybody to give generously. We all would that we could because we don't own it. You see, what a Christian realizes is that even the material wealth that we have is something that we don't own. We've abandoned ownership of it. And it's now something to be used for good and for the glory of God. Now third, there may be a literal abandonment of wealth. Meaning like literally, like the rich young man, a requirement. I must leave behind absolutely everything. I think of Uh, of men and women who have literally left their homes, left their fathers and mothers and moved to difficult lands, third world countries, lived in huts, lived in poverty for the sake of the gospel, caught a disease there and died and was buried there for the sake of Christ. Sometimes God does call us to literally abandon all. Sometimes he calls us to abandon all when we're not expecting it. I have a friend who, some years ago, he, he lost his son. Son died uh, with um, salmonella poisoning. Just got sick, started throwing up, uh, high fever, took him into the, the hospital, and literally within hours he was holding his deceased boy. Not long after that, he was working for a company that required him, it was, it was a sign company, required him to make a sign for a company that he could not, as a believer, get behind. He could not endorse this company. And making this sign in some fashion had, had would, would cause him to... Uh, to make the the cause of Christ, the propagation of the gospel, secondary. And so he made a very difficult decision, and he was fired from his job. Now, still grieving the loss of his son, enters into a time of financial hardship that he has never recovered from. For the sake of Christ and the gospel. Friends, if God in this moment calls you to abandon all, can you? Can you? Can we walk away from the the wealth, the fame, the ideas, the dreams for the sake of Christ? This man, this rich young man was required to abandon all as he was intoxicated by his things he could be obedient he he was a moral person what he could not do was carry a cross you see the first century listeners who were literally in this conversation almost every single one of them was called to carry a very heavy cross of persecution, literal lands that would be robbed from them, farms that that were once theirs that they now find, find themselves working as slaves, wives that are abandoned by their husbands and children as they come to Christ, mothers and fathers that turn against their children. Like there was a literal sense of abandoning that would just simply happen as you Became a Christian in many parts of the Roman Empire. This rich young man was not willing to enter into that kind of life. Wealth here and now, a name here and now for him was much more valuable and important than eternal life. So the first part is that the cost is truly great. The last part, the third, the second part of this is that the reward is infinitely better. Let me show you this and then we're going to close. The reward is infinitely better. Look at verse 30. There are those who will leave all of these brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who will who are first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus is saying something here that causes us to perk up. There is nobody who will abandon uh, the things of this world in this way, their fathers and their mothers and lose their homes and their lands, who will not, he says, receive a hundred times now. In this age of persecution... And then later, eternal life. Let me just break this down as we close. There's a reward now, and there is a reward later. First, the reward now. What does Jesus mean by this? Does he mean that we will literally, like Peter, as he's standing there, Peter, you're going to have a hundred mothers, and a hundred fathers, and a hundred houses, and a hundred lands? You see, there are some today that would love to be able to say, hey guys, give a dollar to the church and God right here promises you to give a hundred back. Alright, every gift that you give, you will receive back a hundredfold. It's just wrong. It's wrong. Why, why do we know that's, that's wrong? Simply this, th- that was not the experience of these disciples. Peter, according to church history, is, is crucified upside down. He didn't end up with, with wealth and with fame in this earth. So what does Jesus mean here? What is the reward now? The reward now is twofold. Number one, we receive 100 times the joy. So we what we find is real and lasting joy. So you once ate like a king in a palace and you had you know, a big turkey leg and people fanning you and Dipping sauces and whatever kings would eat. I don't know. And you've lost to that, okay? You've abandoned that for the cause of Christ. And now you find yourself at a church potluck. A little different in quality. But what you find at the church potluck is a hundred times more joy than you could have ever imagined. What you find is that union now in the gospel with brothers and sisters is so much better than it ever was. That moment in, in, a, in a church worship experience where we experience that, that, that glimpse into eternity, that unity that we have in Christ. More joy than all of the friends that we lost. But, second, there is also a literal sense of reward here. There literally are brothers and sisters in houses, fathers and mothers. And that is the church in the first century you would leave your father and your mother and your your brothers and your sisters and your you would lose your houses and your lands and what you would find is the church the people of god who have a closer union than you can could have ever imagined before one of uh, paul moved moved here last year left his Home left his family, and what he found here at first was homelessness. But then, thankfully, he was part of the church, and homes were opened up to him, and tables were opened up to him, and he found brothers and sisters that he had never had. And then he married his lifelong sweetheart. There, there is a, a, a responsibility that we each have for one another in fulfilling this promise for one another. There, there are people in this room who have uh, literally abandoned um, stuff in this world for the cause of Christ. Abandoned relationships that were not holy, lost family members that turn their backs on them, lost jobs. We are called to be brothers and sisters of, for one another. You have food on your table. You pick up the membership directory. You start calling through. You find someone to share a meal with. There's a sense of reaching out. There's also a a sense of reaching for. You need help. You need a friend. You need a brother or a sister. And you ask. You seek. Jesus here, what what I truly believe he's saying is the rich man, what he could have found is as he lost everything, as he lost his riches, he would have found more wealth. Not in the same way, but he would have found more wealth that would have led to real wealth. Lasting, solid joy. And then lastly, Jesus says, and then later, eternal life in the age to come. This goes back to that initial question, how might I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what what we find when we abandon all in this world is we find life. Eternal life with God. We trust in Christ. Our names are written in the book of life and we have an invitation to sit at that feast that will last forever with Christ at the center as we all bow before him and sing worthy, worthy, worthy. Turn your eyes toward Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's close in prayer. Father, we ask that you seal these truths in our hearts that we find eternal life as infinitely more valuable than this, the riches of this world. For those who, who, who you are calling this morning to abandon all, whether that is their, their spiritual riches, their sense of trying, their sense of uh, believing that they must be perfect, believing that they must be a perfect mom or a perfect Christian or a perfect husband in order to be uh, worthy of your kingdom. God, let us abandon all. Let us fall into the arms of Christ. Let us trust in his righteousness and his work. Let us find ourselves united in his death. And as we're united in his death, we then find ourselves united in his resurrection. We thank you for the good gift of Christ in the gospel. May we do all things for his glory, for his sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.